0: This podcast is brought to you by the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges. In several past episodes of the podcast, we've spent time exploring the work of three proof of concept centers created by NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. One called Nexus New York, which is based upstate, and two here in Manhattan, which have been combined into an organization called PowerBridge. As we heard, proof of concept centers are places where researchers from academia can learn how to take their ideas out of the lab and put them into the marketplace as actual commercial products. And these particular centers were created by NYSERDA as a part of their mission to improve the way we here in New York produce, and use energy. Encouraging the development of new, clean technologies that will allow us to do more while causing less strain on the natural environment. And today, we're going to continue looking at how some of the companies that were started at these proof-of-concept centers are addressing these huge and complex questions by taking on very small, very specific parts of them. In today's episode especially, very small and very specific. Because often, the key to solving big, imposing problems is in the component parts that are not so visible, or even the components of the components. We're going to meet two companies today, one an alum of PowerBridge and the other of Nexus, that are creating the kinds of technologies that the general public will probably never be aware of. But could nonetheless be crucial components of things that have significant impacts on all of our lives. These are both new materials that are designed to play an important role in each of the two biggest clean tech questions one, producing and storing energy more cleanly and efficiently, and second, the better handling of garbage and industrial waste. So let's start with garbage. As we all know, the majority of things we throw away end up in a landfill, basically a giant hole in the ground that we fill up with trash. When these holes are full, we cover them up and dig a new one. Now, this presents environmental issues on several levels, including one that most of us probably don't think about, which is managing these trash heaps once they're full. We like to think that we can just walk away from a landfill and be done with it. But the truth is that they need perpetual maintenance because what's inside them is far from chemically stable. It combines and decomposes and thereby emits all kinds of gases and runoff. One of the most prevalent of these gases is methane, which is both toxic to people and also a powerful greenhouse gas. So, the operators of landfills are forced by environmental regulations to contain methane, rather than letting it just gas off into the atmosphere. Here's Dr. Julia Hasty, entrepreneurial lead for NanoSulf, a company that came out of the PowerBridge program.
1: So, there's a sort of barrier between the trash and the atmosphere, so that whenever all that trash breaks down and makes methane, Instead of going straight into the atmosphere, it's, uh, it gets rerouted in these pipes. And the, the regulation is that we can't actually um, release into the atmosphere, so that methane, it's required for it to be destroyed, and so a lot of land were are actually just flaring it off.
0: Now, the reason they can flare off methane to get rid of it is that it's extremely flammable. And this also makes it tremendously useful as a fuel. It's the primary ingredient in the mixture we call natural gas, which of course can be used for everything from heating homes to running vehicles or industrial equipment. So if you have to capture and contain the stuff anyway, why not use it or sell it instead of just flaring it off? Well, the problem is that it's not just pure methane that comes out of the landfill. It's mixed with a bunch of other chemicals.
1: So there's a little bit of CO2, and there's um, VOCs, which are volatile organic compounds, and then there's also um, hydrogen sulfide.
0: And it's that last one, hydrogen sulfide, which is the stuff, incidentally, that makes garbage heaps smell like rotten eggs, that's the primary obstacle to using this runoff gas as a source of fuel.
1: If it's not dealt with, then it goes downstream, and if it goes into an engine or a turbine, for instance, it ends up making sulfuric acid. Then it'll end up chewing up the pipes. Hydrogen sulfide tends to be the barrier between, um, you know, just flaring gas and then actually having it be a high quality to put into an engine turbine or to put into a um, compressed natural gas. Um, process to be able to utilize the energy
0: in that. So of course, there has been a way developed to scrub the sulfur out and let the methane pass through, and it's based on a natural tendency of sulfur to bind to iron. The process is pretty simple, really. You outfit a huge container, like a shipping container, with a pipe at each end, some kind of a fan, and fill the middle up with iron filings. You then pump the waste gas through it. The sulfur sticks to the iron, and the methane and other less objectionable impurities continue through to the other side. There are a number of problems with this, though. First off, these containers are huge. They take up a lot of space. And second, the filings inside are not reusable. The sulfur sticks to them in clumps, And the resulting mess has to be just thrown back into the landfill.
1: When this chemical reaction occurs, it sort of makes these really difficult clumps. So they take that material after it's been spent, and they spend an entire day of downtime, and they sort of dig it out, and then they dump it back into the landfill. (laughs) The same landfill that they're trying to get gas off of without that much sulfur.
0: So essentially, the result of this whole process is to replace one noxious substance with another, trading methane gas for glumpy, rusty sulfur mess. There has to be a better way to deal with this methane than either wastefully throwing it away or replacing it in the landfill with something useless and nasty. And that's where Dr. Hastie's team comes in. They've developed a new nanotech material that can replace the iron filings at the center of this filtering process. And it's cleaner and more efficient in every way. What we do is
1: we actually take a a biochar matrix. We're actually making this out of charcoal matrix and then embedding it with an iron-based material. Instead of just wasting the catalysts. Um, we can send it through a regenerative process so that you don't have a lot of waste so we're moving from like a you know a rapid consumable sort of um, product to something that can actually be regenerated.
0: So instead of a pile of nasty sulfurated metal, you now have a reusable filter with usable methane on one side and pure sulfur on the other. sulfur which either could be disposed of more efficiently or or even collected and sold as a valuable industrial product in its own right. And the Nanosolf team has been very smart about the way they've developed this filtering material. Because if you already have one of those giant iron-based gas filters at your landfill, you can replace the filings with this new filter without having to replace the entire infrastructure that surrounds it.
1: For existing projects, there's no need to sort of upgrade. You can just sort of slide it into the existing infrastructure, which is, you know, a a benefit to sort of getting, um, you know, projects on the ground and running.
0: And if you don't currently have a filter system, this material could be at the center of one that is more efficient, much smaller, and much less expensive to build.
1: And um, for, for new projects, the footprint of the equipment would be much smaller, so the capital cost of doing an install um, for one of these scrubbing systems is going to be significantly less, um, you know, less in footprint and cost and material and permitting and installation um, than it would be if um, they were to use a much larger system um, and then reduce the footprint by 100 times because of the the efficiency we're able to gain. And it brings down the operation and maintenance costs by, you know, 30% or more.
0: Ecolectro, a company that came through the Nexus New York Proof of Concept Center, is similarly in the business of developing new materials. But in their case, materials that help with the other overarching category of clean tech problems, better production and storage of energy, Specifically, they've created a new kind of alkaline exchange membrane. To explain what that is, here's Ecolectro's CEO, Dr. Gabriel Rodriguez Calero. An alkaline
2: exchange membrane is a polymer film that can transport negative ions or anions through it. All electrochemical cells, meaning batteries, fuel cells electrolyzers have some sort of electrolyte, meaning that's the part responsible for transporting ions. In many cases, that electrolyte is a liquid electrolyte.
0: That electrolyte liquid is the stuff inside a battery that we refer to as battery acid.
2: Now, having a liquid is great, however, having a lot of liquid is bulky, and it it has certain other limitations that moving towards a solid state system, and by solid state I mean having a solid um, medium in which you transport ions, bring you several advantages in terms of the volume this device occupies, in terms of how much energy you can get out of it, in terms of how portable it is, and, and, and other advantages like that.
0: Now, people have been using solid state electrolytic materials for years. They're crucial parts of both modern batteries, and also the kinds of devices Dr. Rodriguez's team more often focuses on, electrolysis devices, which are crucial in all kinds of industrial functions. These materials have always had a problem, though, in that they only function in an extremely acidic environment.
2: Most of the films currently on the market, um, instead of conducting anions, which are negatively charged ions, they conduct cations, meaning positively charged ions. And what that causes is uh, that you have an acidic chemical environment. Now, acids are very corrosive, hence you are essentially limited to a a number of metals that, that are stable under that chemical environment.
0: And it's an unfortunate fact of chemistry that the metals that are most resistant to corrosion also tend to be the most valuable. That's part of what makes them valuable to begin with. So if you want to build a piece of machinery that functions for any length of time in these kinds of super acidic conditions, you can't build it out of steel or nickel or aluminum. You're going to have to build it out of gold or platinum.
2: If... On the other hand, you work with an alkaline exchange membrane, something like what we're doing. Now you have a variety of metals that you are allowed to use. For example, in fuel cell systems or electrolysis equipment, we can replace catalysts that are typically comprised of platinum group metals, or platinum metals, meaning gold, platinum, palladium, very expensive, precious metals for things that are base metals, meaning stainless steel, nickel, and other inexpensive metals.
0: And this kind of reverse alchemy provides an enormous cost savings to their customers, who are the people who manufacture crucial parts for batteries and electrolysis machines. And it does it in kind of an interesting way. The medium itself isn't significantly less expensive than others on the market. But by functioning in an alkaline environment instead of an acidic one, it lets you make everything else out of much less expensive materials. Stainless steel, say, instead of platinum. And that can make for a hugely significant difference in cost.
2: Switching from platinum catalyst to nickel-based catalyst, from titanium plates to stainless steel plates, you could decrease the stack, which is the the, the cell, cost by probably around 40% just by switching.
0: And that cost reduction isn't just a business advantage. It's also an environmental advantage. Because even if a new technology is significantly better than an old one, it usually won't take over the market unless it's also less expensive. And that's been the problem with a lot of green technologies. There is a percentage of the marketplace that will pay an upcharge to be environmentally friendly. But most people are on a budget, so they have to shop price first and environmental concerns second.
2: The way I see it, renewable energy has a lot of potential and it, and the primary barrier to adopting renewable energy solutions has been that they're typically high-cost when they come out. Fuel cell systems uh, have been around for a long time, and, but they, they haven't experienced widespread adoption because they, they were too costly. The price has come down significantly. However, I would argue that if you had the option of choosing uh, renewable energy technology, versus uh, incumbent fossil fuel-based technology, and they were the equivalent price, people will always choose the cleaner option.
0: And the fact that these alkaline mediums have the potential to significantly lower the cost of fuel cells means that they have the potential to significantly lower the cost of fuel cell cars, which could do no less than revolutionize one of the biggest drivers of the global economy.
2: That market is growing quite rapidly. Um, fuel cell systems, for example, transportation is going to be huge for them. Um, Toyota has made a lot of um, – they're selling fuel cell cars in California. I think they're starting to bring them to Germany as well. Honda's close behind it. Some U.S. companies like GM are also bringing fuel cell vehicles to market. And I think at the end, if you can make those technologies that are currently very expensive to the end-use customer – if you can bring them solutions that are at the same price point as a fossil fuel vehicle, I, I think it's game over. And I think what we're doing at Ecolectro is we are removing that cost barrier for adoption. And by utilizing our proprietary chemistry and manipulating the the way things work currently, we can have significant cost savings in all these very impactful clean energy technologies. And that—that that is how we're really impacting the clean energy space. We're, we're making it accessible to everyone to essentially enable widespread adoption of these technologies.
0: And so, when we look at these huge, seemingly intractable problems that are facing the world right now, how are we going to deal with all the trash mankind is creating in a responsible way? Or... How can we wean ourselves from dependence on fossil fuels? It's important to remember that what might seem like tiny technological advances can actually have a huge impact. That a new kind of charcoal filter has the potential to allow us to turn landfill gas into clean burning fuel. Or a tiny polymer membrane could possibly make electric fuel cell cars affordable enough for everyone to own one. Thank goodness there are programs like these proof-of-concept centers that are seeking out these important new ideas and giving them the support they need to come into the marketplace where they can actually begin to affect these kinds of changes. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman special thanks to the experts who we interviewed, Dr. Julia Hasty of Nanosulf and Dr. Gabriel Rodriguez Calero of Ecolectro. To learn more about the Nexus and PowerBridge programs, please visit www.nexus-ny.org and www.powerbridgeny.org. For more information about the Academy and all of its programs, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYASciences on Twitter and Instagram or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.